1: Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, Alternative Media for Discerning Minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Robert Bouval, the internationally known best-selling author and researcher, the astronomy of the ancient Egyptians, their pyramids and temples. He proposed that the layout of the three Giza pyramids and their relative position to the Nile was intended to mirror the layout of the three stars in Orion's belt and the relative position to the Milky Way. This thesis is now known as the Orion Correlation Theory. We will discuss this and since Robert Bouval was born and raised in Egypt He will give us his unique perspective of the revolution what led to it and his vision of the future in the middle east robert Pouval will be with us shortly to listen to tonight's full show and the new material on veritas tv become a member i have added new short interviews from the 2011 international ufo congress and in the next few days i will add a lecture by jim nichols about the military industrial complex and Ronald Reagan's Presidential ET Briefing, a very interesting lecture that I witnessed last Saturday. Once you become a member, you will receive instant access to all our material. And remember, Veritas survives under voluntary subscriptions only. No sponsorship equals no censorship. Think about the next time you spend $7.95. Do you really receive any value? That is what you pay per month as a Veritas member and you receive over 126 shows all in CD audio quality, Veritas TV, our very unique Manitio Forum where you can interact with enlightened people around the world to discuss everything that matters. Just go to the subscribe link of our website, VeritasShow.com and take Veritas with you. You can also download our latest show via iTunes. During these days of uncertainty, the uncensored truth is priceless don't wait any longer subscribe today you can also purchase our futuristic 8 gigabyte metal case USB drive containing seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material go to the Veritas store for more information and don't forget get your MMS right from us it's better to have it and not need it and need it and not have it listen to Jim Humble's interview for more information And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to spend a night with the man who connected the Pyramids of Giza to the Orion Belt. Did you know that the three pyramids were lined up on a diagonal with the smallest one offset to the left? An Egyptian dynasty text referred to a king that wanted to travel to the star Sirius. Boval later connected the stars in Orion's belt, near Sirius, to the positioning of the three pyramids. But you know that shafts inside the Great Pyramid's chambers were pointed at stars in Orion, coinciding with where they would have been in the sky around 10,500 BC, suggesting the structures at Giza are much older than most Egyptologists believe. Interestingly, 10,500 BC was also the date Edgar Cayce, mentioned that a hall of records was buried inside the Sphinx. These records may reveal a message or artifact that shows civilization is far older than previously thought, and we are not what we think we are. For this and much more, Robert Buval is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Hancock and you're listening to the Veritas Show. Robert Bouval was born in Egypt in 1948. He studied construction engineering in England and subsequently worked in the Middle East and Africa until 1985. In 1994 he published The Orion Mystery, which was a number one bestseller and now translated in more than 25 languages. He also wrote Keeper of Genesis in 1996 with Graham Hancock, which was also a number one bestseller, and now in more than 20 languages. Robert has two new books coming out very soon, Black Genesis, The Prehistoric Origins of Ancient Egypt, and The Master Game, Unmasking the Secret Rulers of the World. Robert lives in Spain with his wife, Michelle. And directly from Costa del Sol, Southern Spain, I am privileged to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Robert Bouval. Hello, Mr. Bouval, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, uh, Madeline. Pleased to be on your show. It's my pleasure. And uh, a lot of people have been asking about you for a long time. We've had uh, Graham Hancock, Michael Cremo, and a lot of your friends, and uh, finally we get to have you on. But everybody's very curious to know of your background. Of yourself and what made you the researcher you have become tell us where you grew up and and I look forward to discussing the current changes taking place in the Middle East and
0: especially in Egypt since you were born there I bet you have a lot to say absolutely well uh, yes uh, I was born in Egypt in the city of Alexandria in 1948 a long long time ago Uh, let me fix you up in the uh, in the context of Egypt Uh, 1948 was still a monarchy uh, king Farouk was the was the last king of Egypt. Yes. Uh, in 1952, he was deposed uh, by uh, the so-called Free Officers uh, Revolution, more like a putsch, really. Uh, and uh, since then, Egypt has been a, uh, a republic uh, run by a military uh, a military group. Uh, anyway, back to me. I I left. Uh, I was educated, by the way, in English schools, although I'm from uh, a mixed uh, parenthood. My mother uh, was Maltese. There was a lot of Maltese uh, people living in Egypt because of the proximity of Malta. Right. And uh, my my father's father, my grandfather, had come from Belgium. Uh, It was quite a common kind of uh, cultural mix uh, in, in Alexandria in those days. Uh, there were the so-called cosmopolitans, uh, i.e., non-Egyptians, of which I belonged. We were many of many nationalities, but in fact, in reality, we were Egyptians. We were—I'm three generations already in Egypt—and uh, but they always saw us as cosmopolitans. The word in Arabic is Hawagi. There you are. So when I go to Egypt, I'm referred to as a Hawagi. Uh-huh. Uh, having said this, I—I uh, I went through uh, the, <laughs> the 52 Revolution. Uh, where the king was deposed, uh, I went to an English school. Uh, in '56 was of course a Six Day War, which caused a lot of havoc yes. uh, among the uh, the foreign population, the so-called Hawagis. Uh Many left, but my father uh, managed to stay. We managed to stay till 1967. Uh, then uh, '67 war came. Uh, the uh, the, the, actually, the 56th War was the the, the Suez War, not the 6th War. Six day the Sixty War, sorry. 67, yes. 67, yes. I remember this very well. I was actually taking my exams uh, in Cairo, uh, my, my high school exams, when they announced the war, and uh, I returned home. My father had uh, died a year before, and uh, my mother said, Let's leave. This is getting a bit too much. So we joined my brother in Switzerland. I moved to Switzerland for temporarily, and then I proceeded to, to live in England, where I completed my higher education. I have a uh, higher national diploma in construction engineering, where I completed in '73. So that's my my story in very brief. In Egypt, um, I maintained my contacts in Egypt because my mother carried on living there until she was 84. By the way, she uh, she uh, she's a true Egyptian, really. <laughs> Eventually, she immigrated to Australia, uh, but uh, she died two years ago, and uh, she's now buried in Alexandria with my father. So we have a literally a, a, a strong and a lasting presence uh, in in this land of Egypt. I, I feel very much part of of uh, of Egypt, and uh, my heart belongs there, like I always say. Uh, Anyway, from there on, I uh, I studied in England from uh, seven sixty seven to 73. Uh, after which, uh, when I qualified, I worked in quite a lot of Middle Eastern countries. I uh, I started working in the Sultanate of Oman. I'm mentioning all this because, of course, of the of the events in the in the, in the Arab world. You know, I've been to all these places. I've, I've worked in the Sultanate of Oman, which is one of the most peaceful areas. But they did have a bit of trouble uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, following suit with all the events that's happening in uh, in North Africa. Uh, Then, uh, as a young man, I worked uh, quite a bit in Africa, in West Africa. I ended up my engineering career working in Saudi Arabia. I was based in Riyadh. And uh, by then, I was in my early 30s. And uh, minding my own business, really, as far as Egyptology was concerned, However, uh, I had an interest, of course, having come from Egypt, and uh, like many people, I read books about the pyramids and so forth. But it really was uh, a hobby rather than, uh, than anything else. Uh, however, where, where it all changed for me, you'll have to interrupt me, man, because I, I have a tendency to carry on, <laughs> by the way.
1: No, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I, it reminds me of the conversation that I recently had with uh, Graham Hancock, that the two of you, you are not armchair researchers. You go out there, you you actually oh, yeah. look for the evidence and you experience, this, experience it yourself. And with all that is happening in the Middle East, especially uh, North Africa, and you haven't been born in Egypt, with the new book that's coming out, Master Game, it, it seems to be very timely and appropriate. We'll discuss some of the correlations. Have you found some correlations between your book and what's happening there?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Um... But let me just complete the picture because you asked me uh, uh, how it all changed for yes. me. But in very very brief, in 1982, uh, I went on. A, I was working in Riyadh at the time in Saudi Arabia. I went to Egypt to visit my mother, and it really all changed for me. I call it the apple that fell on my head. You know the Newtonian apple. Newton, yes. Well, well, it wasn't an apple for me. It was a photograph <laughs> <laughs> at the Cairo Museum. I noticed the, uh, an overhead picture of the pyramids, and I became really obsessed to explain the strange misalignments. Um, and uh, one thing led to another. I'll cut it short here. And uh, eventually, I made the correlation known as the Orion Correlation Theory. You, you, many of your, your listeners will probably know it. Yes. It's uh, where I identified a, a layout plan uh, of the pyramids, uh, and their relation to the Lyle to the zone of Orion's belt in the sky and its relation to the to the Milky Way it became known as the Orion Correlation Theory it's backed of course by the uh, pyramid texts and, and, and various alignments of the pyramids, particularly shafts inside the Great Pyramid and uh, that was it, I published uh, I published several articles but eventually I published a book in 94 the Orion Mystery and uh, the rest is history really the hell broke loose and I became a Not just a a completely change of profession, I became a professional writer. Uh, That's more or less when I met Graham Hancock, by the way. And uh, also, I became uh, a kind of uh, uh, Ralph Nader of Egyptology, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good uh, analogy, yeah. Yes, they didn't like me at first. Many still don't like me. I mean, I caused a lot of disturbance because the theory was well accepted by the public. It's still a very popular theory and it's still very much discussed and of course it caused a huge huge uh, uh, problem in egyptology because it it raised the question of the level of sophistication of the ancient egyptians and particularly something that was so obvious once you 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 saw it so it was one of these uh, uh, things, I mean I, I always say this, I mean I was totally unprepared for the reaction, I mean I had just about every Egyptologist uh, archaeologist uh, every ist, <laughs> everybody who's got an ist after his name attacked me but uh, I've become as tough as a rhinoceros, you know, and I've, I've, I've survived it like Hanko did with his own theories and uh, and that's it But now sort of 20 years later uh, coming to uh, the book that you uh, refer to, the last book I've written with Hancock. Perhaps I should say, because you mentioned uh, that we are not armchair researchers, it's quite true. Uh, Hancock himself has been around quite a lot before yes. I met him, as a matter of fact. He, he, he was based in uh, at one stage in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, had a lot, a lot of activity there. He was a, a correspondent of The Economist there. We met uh, when we both were in our early 40s. Uh, I'm 63 now, by the way, and we uh, we became friends ever since. I mean, um, we've managed to do uh, four books together, believe it or not. <laughs> so it's a, it's a testimony to our friendship because it's not easy to write books with a with a co-author. It's it's a bit like a it's a bit like a difficult marriage, really. But, um, <laughs> yes. We did very well, and uh, we work very well together. There's a kind of synergy that's between us that is, uh, it's difficult to understand. I mean, we ourselves are a bit uh, pleased and, and puzzled because it works so well. I mean, we, we just do it, I suppose we're a bit like a mini uh, pop group. <laughs> we seem to get along very well. We, we, we compose together. We, we, uh, we have the same ideas, the same outlook. So, uh, it's worked very well. Anyway, the, the Master Game, which is our last book. Is a very interesting uh, book because <clears throat> I should say, can I can I carry on? By the way,
1: of course. And I was just going to say, there's a lot of synergy between you and Graham. When I had him on the show, he said to me, "You have to have Rubber Bouval on your show." So I just wanted to let you know that he thinks you
0: know this. He thinks the best of you. Well, I I do about him. I mean, we we have really absolute respect for each other. We went through a lot together. Uh, not just on the professional level, but on the personal level, and uh, we've always shored ourselves up. We we supported ourselves, and uh, like I said, you know, we produced uh, three bestsellers, uh, three number one bestsellers together. So it's it's it it's it, it's a hallmark of a very very good cooperation. I'm I'm delighted that uh, that we and we met in a very strange way, by the way. Uh, perhaps you will be interested in the story because. Shall I tell you the story? Oh,
1: sure, tell us. I don't, I don't think a lot of people know.
0: Uh, well, uh, I was still not known at all as a writer, and I, I, I was still uh, dragging my heels, uh, wondering if I would write a book or not. And I happened to be in Egypt uh, in 1993, to be precise, in March, when there was a rather uh, distasteful event. There was a, uh, a terrorist attack in Tahrir Square, everybody knows Tahrir yes. Square now. Mm-hmm. There was a bomb that exploded in Tahrir Square. Some some lunatic uh, terrorist put it there. Luckily, not many people got hurt. Uh, however, it caused one hell of a rumpus. And uh, being me, I thought this is a good time to visit the, the, the Cairo Museum because nobody's going to be there and uh, I'll have a free hand. And in those days, you could take photographs. And I wanted to have a collection of photographs. So I went there. And uh, when I was inside the museum, uh, there was a commotion at the door. And what was happening was that there was a visit, a, a kind of symbolic visit by the uh, bishop, the Coptic bishop of Cairo, who I discovered later was named Moses of all names. And uh, there he was with the delegation of bishops from Ethiopia. They all looked marvelous with their, their outfit and carrying uh, a staff with cross and they, they, they have these beards and, and and they dangle these chains with crosses. They look fantastic. I mean, they really look like ancient priests. And uh, here they were with bodyguards and they passed right in front of the statue of Ramses II which, of course, is the pharaoh of the Exodus. Yeah. So, I thought you know, here they are, Moses, the Ethiopian bishops, <laughs> a wonderful photograph. So, I raised my camera and I was immediately jumped by the bodyguards who thought I was I was I was trying something funny. Sure. Uh, however, I did take the picture, and I thought Graham Hancock, this author, is going to like it. So I mailed it to him, and that's how he we got together. He, he called me up and said, "Wonderful picture, let's meet." You know, and what are you doing? So I told him about my plans, and uh, we met in this this peculiar way. Synchronicity—that's what I call it.
1: Absolutely I- interesting, and you know, you probably have heard that there's a movie out there on the internet called The Orion Conspiracy. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, it's kind of a cult classic right now. And I connected some dots. And when I had Graham on the show, when I watched that movie last year, I thought it was a lot of Photoshop, a lot of uh, science fiction, if you will. But I started watching, looking at the the footage they had undersea pyramids, uh, showing the the Orion Belt with the pyramids, and I said, "What is this? What is all of this? Is it science fiction?" And uh, when I talked to Graham, he said, "No, my wife and I." have been scuba diving in the island of uh, Nagajuni in in, uh, Japan, and then your part, so a lot of this information is in that movie, and it's not science fiction at all. Have you heard that?
0: Quite honestly, you're the first person who's telling me this, but there's been a lot of sort of called Orion. uh, Many people have used the Orion correlation theory Mm -hmm. uh, in either books or documentaries or or science fiction movies. It was in Transformer 2, by the way. Oh, is that Uh, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> that's how I became famous with my son. <laughs> with <We laughs> thought your this son. is cool, that. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, in fact, the idea was was in Stargate, uh, the film. Yes, uh, where they they look at the uh, try to decipher the wheel, and they look at a picture of Orion, and they figure it out. So, it's been used quite a bit. It was used in Ten Thousand B.C. the film as well. I never got credit for it, by the way. <laughs> I mean, but to me, it's 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 fun. You know, it's, I'm, I'm happy. It's, it's it's roaming, in even in science fiction. But uh, the Orion correlation theory is one of those that has not only uh, very much nagged the Egyptological world because it's it's one of those very obvious theories, and it's one of those theories that you may or may not agree with it, but it's there. You know, it's it's uh, the pyramids are laid out nobody can move them and the yes. stars are up there and nobody can move them it's there for everybody to see uh, I'm very convinced of it I mean I've been on this theory for the last uh, ooh, 25 years and uh, I've just done a show by the way uh, with History Channel I was in London a few days ago it's still rumbling I mean it's quite amazing how much it has affected uh, the public uh, because it's one of those that you know uh, one day you wake up and you think, well, you know, maybe it isn't just a religion. Maybe there's something more behind it, you know. Uh, they went to a lot of trouble uh, uh, correlating that site to that specific group of stars. And, uh, you know, sometimes your imagination goes wild. When did it you bothers, do this?
1: And when did you realize, wait a minute, I can see the correlation.
0: When did I realize the correlation? Yeah,
1: when did you realize there's a correlation between the pyramids and the Orion Belt? How, how did that happen?
0: Oh, well, um, as I was saying, I I went to Egypt and I stumbled on this photograph. Uh, I was still working in Riyadh at the time. I'll be very brief because a lot of people blame me for for being too eloquent and sometimes wasting time. But uh, I was uh, living in the city of Riyadh and we used to go in the desert to camp very often. And one of these camping nights, now I was aware of several things. Uh, first, I had the image of the pyramids that I had seen on this photograph, on this aerial photograph, uh, in my mind. It had it had really bugged me because I was convinced there was a master plan, but I couldn't explain, and nobody had explained, why there was an offset of the third smaller pyramid from this layout plan. You have two large pyramids on a diagonal, uh, and then a third smaller one, which is offset. It just was one of those annoying things, you know, you... you I don't know if you you have this feeling when you look at a at a painting on a wall and it's skewed with you know you you yes. kind of want to put it right. You know? uh-huh. uh, so it bugged me, and I knew of course that there was a strong astronomical quality to those monuments. They were uh, they were uh, set on the ground to face the cardinal direction to incredible precision. What I didn't know then was that there was a shaft pointing to Orion Belt. Uh, so. With, with that basic information, I uh, stumbled on a book like like everybody does, a coffee table book, where it talked about the pyramid text and particularly that the king of the Pyramid Age, the kings of the Pyramid Age, wanted to join the god Osiris in the sky, in the constellation of Orion. This was well known in Egyptology. and uh, So, with this in mind, I happened to be in the desert and a friend of mine was, was there with me. He was a navigator and pointed to these stars and not knowing what I had in mind, and said, ah, here is uh, navigators. They use Orion's belt because it rises east. And there are these three stars in a row. And then as an an afterthought, he said, well, no, no, the the third less bright or smaller star is offset to the left. And that's it. The penny dropped in my mind. Mm. I I saw a map, a celestial map, that that, that, that converted itself in my mind into a pyramid map. And uh, I thought, this is weird. You know, let me... You know, nobody noticed this before. I began writing to Egyptologists, and I got very quickly a reply from um, the late Professor Edwards, the uh, the authority on pyramids. He was the curator of the British Museum in those days. Very excited, saying, uh, "I think you got something there." And uh, did you know that uh, there is a shaft inside the Great Pyramid pointing, or or was pointing, to Orion's Belt when the pyramid was constructed? I didn't know this, so to me, that's it. That clinched it. I mean, I, I I was very sure I had something. And I was puzzled that nobody had noticed it. And uh, it took me quite a while to publish, but eventually I did publish, as uh, I was saying earlier. And that's it. That, that's, I became lumbered, if you like, with this theory. And, uh, well, it's been a long time now, and it's become my thing. Uh, I know what what my life was all about, really. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it means, but I know it was my, my quest. What was
1: the uh, reaction? And by the way, may I call you Robert. Please, please. Of what was the reaction? Thank you. What was the reaction of uh, Dr. Sahih Hawass? And I also wanted to ask you why you think you stepped
0: down recently. Well, let me answer your first question. the The, the reaction was very violent. Yes. Uh, uh, the reaction at well, the reaction was very wide and very very heated up because uh, when I published the Orion Correla- the, the 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 Orion Mystery, the book, uh, it came out first in London. It shot up uh, to the in the charts it was a number one bestseller and there was in parallel a TV documentary done by the BBC uh, called uh, the great pyramid gateway to the start based on this book so of course it received a huge huge amount of attention and of course uh, like I said you know suddenly there were six million people who had seen this documentary among them many Egyptologists and, uh, and archaeologists and wow uh, you know, the, the the papers were full of it for for a, for a couple of weeks. I mean, uh, professors were saying this man is mad. You know, and they didn't know how to align the pyramids to star. You know, it was all over the place. So you know, I, I survived the initial onslaught, if you like. And uh, but then uh, there was many challenges, discussions, uh, articles. Uh, I talked in universities and started going around the world. So I had this reaction. Who was the most violent? Was Zahi Hawass, who who still objects very much to this theory. I don't know why, by the way. Uh, feels that uh, that somebody stepped on his turf. You know, I was I was uh, I was very famous, if you like, for a while while he was in, in, in the background, and he didn't like that. And, uh, We've become, uh, I suppose, a uh, nemesis uh, to each other since then. I mean, he's not an easy man. He is rather an oddball. Uh, I've had a lot of cross uh, battles with him. I mean, uh, I know I'm, I'm a bit biased, so perhaps I'm not the right person to, to criticize him. But uh, I think a lot of people know this about him. He's, he's very autocratic. He's a kind of Mubarak of Egyptology, if you like, Yeah. or Gaddafi.
1: Maybe that's why he stepped down.
0: Well, he stepped down uh, because, frankly, he was finished anyway. I mean, uh, let me give you the background of this. I mean, he he was appointed chairman of antiquities in 2002. He had been director of the Giza pyramids for a long time, since the uh, mid-80s. So, he had already been the boss of Giza, if you like, of the pyramids. Uh, uh, And then he became chairman in 2002. He stayed chairman... uh, Till the revolution. However, a couple of years before the revolution, he was supposed to retire uh, by obligation because of his age. Uh, officials in Egypt have to retire at the age of 63. Uh, sorry, this was in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he uh, he got a special uh, uh, favor done by uh, pre- ex-president Mubarak, who... Uh, in order for him to be able to stay in this post of chairman of the antiquities, he had to be promoted as a minister. Uh, ministers are allowed to stay uh, indefinitely. Uh, he was made uh, vice minister of culture and under secretary of state. Uh, he obviously had a very, very strong support from the Mubarak family, particularly Suzanne Mubarak, by the way. Uh, I've never understood this, but she seemed to, to ve- be very keen on him being in this post. Uh When the revolution took place uh, and Mubarak, uh, feeling the pressure of the revolution after a few days, on the 30th of January, uh, decided to appease, to try and appease the the youth who were were revolting, uh, uh, offered to change the cabinet. So he actually changed the cabinet. Everybody left except Hawass, who was retained as... A Minister of antiquity, they they actually invented the new ministry for him, which was this Ministry of Antiquities. It's only a couple of months old this ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when Mubarak left uh, and his prime Minister was obliged to dissolve the cabinet uh, and announced this, then Hawas knew he was finished. I mean, not only because the the cabinet was was uh, being dissolved, but because he had this very, very strong connection with the old regime, if you like. Uh, he's having a hard time at the moment. He's being, uh, uh, people are accusing him of corruption, of theft, of antiquities. I don't know if all this is true, but uh, certainly he's, he's under pressure. Uh, but being Hawas, he'll survive somehow. He's one of those survivors, I have to say. He's uh, he's a tough cookie. <laughs> so one, we'll see. But, one thing, one thing but that's that I, the reason why he stepped down. You know? Right, right. Basi- in, ba- sorry, basically he said, uh, you can't fire me, I resign. Okay, I mean, basically that's what he did. Well,
1: sa- save, saving face. And of course, when you think of Hawas, you think of the Mubarak regime. But in my opinion, he was just... It, it, not only you, but I've spoken to other researchers who feel the same way. He was more or less protecting the, uh, you know, classical Egyptologists maintained that the pyramids were merely grandiose tombs to commemorate dead pharaohs. And they wanted to keep it like that, built by slave labor and laid out in, in a relatively unstructured manner. But I think you have a different perspective on this, right?
0: Well, I do, yes. But uh, to, to be fair on him, he uh, he was against the slave labor. Um, he uh, was very much a proponent that the pyramids were built by paid labor mm. uh, or a labor of love right. uh, I I don't think they were slaves but I don't think there was much love either I mean uh, you know there is evidence of uh, Professor Caricelle who was a very good friend of mine examined the bones of people uh, of workers who had been working on the pyramids they found graves and they all had their backs broken so mm. it must have been a tough job which one expects you know it must have been a very very tough However, he was a proponent of the non-slave theory. But, of course, the tomb theory was was what he adhered to, like most Egyptologists. Right. He, there is a lot of things that have to be said about the man. Uh, he was very enthusiastic. He was a great enthusiast. Uh, he they defended Egypt uh, antiquities. Uh, he actually took it too far. I mean, he began to see himself as a kind of... Uh, uh, spokesman for all of Egypt, and he uh, he v- was ferociously protective. Uh, so, one has to give him that. But he it went to his head, really. He became uh, very much a, a media figure. He was totally autocratic. He refused to listen to anybody's uh, opinion. Uh, worse, I mean, anybody who dared to contradict him was facing either uh, being banned from archaeology or, uh, or being thrown out of Egypt. So, he, he was really a very, very difficult man. Uh, but he interpreted this as being passion. You know, he saw it as a passionate uh, attitude that he had. But he, he was very, very, very difficult to work with him. Uh, I, I mean, I had huge bra- rows, rows with him uh, in, in his office. I mean, <laughs> so he, he would often forget that I didn't work for him. And he would scream at me, saying, I want you to do this. And <laughs> I would say, Doctor, how was I? I? don't work for you. You know, read my lips, you know. Right. So we went through all this this, this stuff, but he, he, Egyptology became a very very politicized uh, profession in Egypt. Few people dared to cross him. Uh, he would claim every discovery being his own. Uh, he this he upset a lot of people, and he really um, was, I suppose, because of this autocratic manner that he had. He he obstructed a lot of research, uh, much, much delay. I mean, one of the the, 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 the the examples that everybody knows is those famous doors that were discovered in the pyramid in 93. Uh, I presume you know about these. Yes. And, uh, yes. Well, I was very much involved with this affair with uh, Rudolf ganterbrick uh, I knew Rudolf uh, very well, the discoverer of the doors. How was, was absolutely awful to him. I mean, he made his life miserable to the point where where, where Rudolf had to go away. And then uh, delays upon delays. I mean, it took from '93 to 2002 to finally attempt to open these doors uh, with the famous National Geographic live show, which was a total fiasco. And we've been waiting ever since. Uh, you know, he's been promising, I'll open these doors next year, next month, next year, next month. It's been going on forever. We're well, now more than fifteen years. But, but I think
1: Robert, uh, it's, impo- it's important to tell the audience how, how these doors were found. I think it was during the
0: installation of an air conditioning system, right? Yes. Yes. Sorry, I, I I'm jumping gun here. I mean, uh, it started with uh, with a with an investigation by the uh, German ecological institute to uh, to improve the ventilation of the pyramid. And they recruited uh, somebody called, uh, well, the German robotic engineer called Rudolf Gantebrich. Uh, Gantebrich yes. wanted to explore the shaft in the Queen's Chamber. And he made a deal with the, uh, with the German Institute and the uh, Antiquity Department. At the time, Hawass was director of Giza. And the deal was that if he would finance the ventilation uh, activity and supply the equipment for ventilation... They would uh, allow him to explore the shafts, and that's the deal that he made. But uh, they they thought this was a dead deal, really, because they were firmly convinced that there was nothing to explore. Of course, when Ganterberg discovered the door, everything changed. And uh, suddenly Hawass uh, realized that uh, you know somebody totally out of the blues and not involved with Egyptology had discovered uh, what could be the greatest discovery in, in archaeology, a door that may lead... We still don't know, but may lead to you name it. Maybe uh, the, the 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 Chamber of Chaos, maybe records, maybe God knows. I mean, this is the great pyramid. So of course, uh, Hawass immediately started putting resistance, and uh, Rudolf was banned. to To I mean, I, I I lobbied a lot in favor of Rudolf. I mean, I actually wrote a book about this called Secret Chamber, uh, but nothing doing. I mean, uh, Hawass was like a dam, refusing any interference and uh, took over the project eventually so so that's the story of these doors I well mean, it's uh,
1: embarrassing for 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 somebody out of the blue to discover something when hawaz and his team never did before
0: yeah 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 i mean it was it was really you know the funny thing about egyptology is that most of the important discoveries were actually not made by egyptologists yeah. you know uh the Tutankhamun tomb you know was a total outsider uh, Lord Carnarvon had nothing to do with Egyptology, and neither had Howard Carter, although he became an Egyptologist. Uh, Rudolf Gantner, totally outside Egyptology, was an engineer uh, working in robotics in Germany, and he made and what could be? We still don't know what could be the greatest discovery in ever. You know, if there's something behind these doors, then one would expect something fantastic, because this is the Great Pyramid. You know, the the sky is the limit. Uh, and then comes people like myself and john West and and uh, we're, we're putting uh, the whole of chronology upside down you know uh, so it's a funny thing and probably the reason is that Egyptologists have stopped uh, have stopped asking questions you know they, they they're very fixed on their consensus they they, 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 they have this uh, peer problem you know nobody wants to upset uh, the authorities and, and and until Hawass was there, I, I've always said this. You know, he uh, he became so autocratic that nobody could say anything. Is it because
1: they don't want that he and his group? They don't want to upset the, and you being an Egyptian, you may, may relate to this, that they don't want to upset the national pride. I mean, when we see all these discoveries and your correlation between the Orion Belt and the pyramids, that tells us that maybe they got some help from above and they don't want to relinquish what they found as being part of Egypt's, uh,
0: you know, uh,
1: an asset of heritage, Egypt's people.
0: heritage. yes. Yes, heritage. Yes. Well, there's a bit of that. Um looking at it purely uh, from a uh, totally conventional point of view, I mean, the Orion correlation w- was nothing against Egypt. I mean, I- I- in fact, it was it was uh, boosting uh, Egyptian prestige. I mean, it showed that the ancient Egyptians were much more sophisticated, uh, had greater ideas rather than just build tombs, that they were capable of uh, aligning monuments and tracking stars and so forth. So, I was a bit puzzled about about this reaction. I think it simply, at the beginning, was that it didn't come from Egyptology, mm-hmm. and uh, I think they had, you know, hawa certainly had a lot of trouble accepting this. He's always been particularly ferociously opposed to what he calls amateurs and outsiders, and you know, he he, he acts as if the pyramids belong to him. You know, <laughs> I'm not the only yes. one saying this. I mean, previous Egyptologists in Egypt uh, say this. I mean, they they, they can't move without. Well, he's gone now, but they couldn't move without his permission. However, having said this, where it really began to to cause him uh, disturbance was when uh, Graham and I wrote Keeper of Genesis, uh, and we uh, came up with the uh, analytical conclusion using astronomy that there was a connection with a much much earlier date of ten thousand five hundred BC. Now, who was coming up with that? Remote date or or, or remote dates, uh, more or less, uh, at the same time, was uh, John West and 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 uh, Robert Shock using geology. They were analyzing the erosion of the Sphinx, uh, and they too. So here was two sciences, uh, very hard sciences, astronomy and, and geology, uh, pointing to an earlier phase. Uh, then the position that Egyptology had taken, saying that the Egyptian civilization began around 3000 BC, where we were we were throwing that date much earlier. So, either they accepted an earlier date, or, which they didn't, so Hawass said, well, if you say it was earlier, then you're insulting us because you're saying that it was somebody else who exactly. did it.
1: Exactly.
0: So, uh, I, I was actually called a Zionist. <laughs> you know, I mean, he said... <laughs> Because you're you're trying to undermine Egyptian authority uh, uh, prestige, you are a Zionist. He actually went on the radio and on on television and in the newspaper. I mean, it was terrible. Is that right? You know? Oh, yes, yes, yes. He used the word terrorist as well. So, well, it, there was a fine line. He, he said you're a Zionist and a theorist. So people sort of read this, and I got very upset. Of course, I still had family in Egypt, and uh, I went to see him. I said, what's this rubbish? I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, we're, we're, I mean, apart from the fact that I'm not a Zionist, uh, but uh, this is ridiculous. You're, you're politicizing this argument. But he he took it this way, and it, it it just was very 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 difficult to even reason with him. And he's longer going like at all my last book that that's coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, Black Genesis.
1: Oh, I know, I know. And, and, and speaking of the ten thousand years ago, uh, the, the work with Graham Hancock, the secrets that may have been left buried beneath the Sphinx? This is a question that I get all the time. Have you found anything, and has anybody tried to uncover what's under the Sphinx spa?
0: Yes. Uh, Again, I should give you a background to this. Uh, I wasn't involved with this at all, to be honest with you, uh, until the mid-1990s. It started when Hawass was very, very aggressive towards Hancock and I for having produced this uh, this earlier date. Now, the date happened to be 10,500 BC. Uh, I don't want to go into the complexity of the astronomy, but when you analyze the Giza necropolis, uh, the monuments that are there, the three pyramids and the Sphinx, uh, and you follow a logical ABC logic through astronomy, you will arrive at the same conclusion that we arrive. That these these monuments uh, are locked into a time frame uh, using the sky as a as a lock. In other words, that they represent an image of the sky uh, with two constellations: Orion for the pyramids and Leo, the constellation of Leo, for the for the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. That lock into this uh, design perfectly at 10,500 BC. Uh, now you know uh, to me the logic is very straightforward uh, uh, uh very briefly because i think it's it's uh, we won't have time to go through the mechanics of this but if one accepts that the three pyramids on the ground represent the three stars of orion's belt then you have a problem here because although the the pattern is the same the angle that they form in the sky In 2500 BC, which is the date given to the pyramids by Egyptologists, do not match the pyramids on the ground. The angle of the three stars is much more uh, deep. It's about 17 degrees or so. Whereas on the ground, the pyramids are 45 degrees. In order for them to match, you have to, well, you can't move the pyramids and you can't move the stars, you know. Well, the fact is, you can move the stars, believe it or not. Well, not really move them, but you can precess them. A precession. You can look at, that's right. Yes. This, is this phenomenon that, uh, of precession where the earth wobbles, mm-hmm. causing the apparent displacement of the constellations. Now, if you precess the stars back in time, oddly enough, they arrive they, 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 they move in such a way that they perfectly match the pyramids on the ground. Now, we didn't pick a, a date out of the blues. We reasoned out, well, what would be the date that the Egyptians are telling us? Now, the Egyptians who built the pyramids tell us that the god Osiris, that is supposedly represented by these stars, began civilization in an epoch which they call the beginning of time, or to be more precise, the first time. They call it tep It literally translates as the first time of Osiris. Now, we reason that, well, if Osiris is represented by these stars, do these stars have a first time? Well, they do, if you consider precession. So, as we precess them back in time to their lowest point, their nadir, their first time, if you like, Lo and behold, they matched what was on the ground. Better still, they matched when these stars were precisely at the meridian, at culmination in the middle of the sky, due south, to correlate with the monuments on the ground, the pyramids. Then if you look to the east at that time, what had moved in front of the Sphinx, exactly in front of the Sphinx, was the constellation of Leo. So that to me could not be a coincidence. The whole machinery of the sky moved in such a way that when you went to the beginning of the precessional cycle of Rhine's belt, the image precisely locked. So that was the theory. Okay?
1: What date What day uh, you, did you, you come max. up with?
0: Yes, we, we, we presented this theory in, in, in Keeper of Genesis, in Message of the Sphinx. In America, it was given a different title. And uh, there's a lot of supporting evidence, of course, the texts and many other arguments. But, but what date? Is the w-
1: what was the date and how did you come up with it? Did you use computer models to, to, to put it all together?
0: When did you come up with this? It was 1996. Right. But we, we w- 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 when, w- as you
1: were putting the, the pieces together, then what is the date that the pyramids were placed there, basically, if you use computer models to, to come up to that conclusion?
0: The conclusion that we arrived was that whoever built those pyramids and the Sphinx was directing our attention, was leaving a message related to 10,500 BC. Uh-huh. And they were using the language of astronomy to express this message, which is not surprising at all because the the uh, the textual conversion of this astronomical language is the Pyramid Text. The Pyramid Texts which were published which were carved in pyramids not of Giza, following Giza. Giza is of the 4th dynasty. The 5th dynasty, pyramid builders, engraved texts inside their pyramids. We call these the pyramid texts. Mm-hmm. Now perhaps I should say that the pyramids of Giza, those that represent Belt, do not have texts. Whereas the pyramids of the 5th dynasty, the following dynasty, do have these pyramid texts. And these pyramids are full of reference to the sky and the king wanting to become a star and going to Orion's belt and so forth. Now, my conclusion was that the, those who built the Giza pyramids were speaking a different language. We're speaking astronomical language. We're speaking a scientific language, if you like. Which is very obvious when you analyze the Giza pyramids. They're full of of uh, of, of of geometry and alignments that, that tells us that those who built those monuments were were expressing themselves in scientific terms. You know, they they used mathematics, uh, geometry, uh, astronomy, and so forth. Now, using the pyramid texts of the later dynasty, which speak of this, when you converted these and thought of astronomy and, and, and began to correlate them to images in the sky, you arrive at this conclusion. It's inevitable. So, the conclusion that we arrive at by going through all these steps, A, B, C, D, and arriving at Z, was that the Giza Necropolis was, was engraved, was a memorial, if you like, to that date? It represents that date. It's a bit like Kilroy was here in 10,500 BC. That's what it basically says. Except it says Ori- uh, uh, Osiris was here. They give us that date. Now, what do we do with it? You know, this was the big problem with, uh, when we wrote uh, Keeper of Genesis. You know, here is that date, and we have to investigate why they're so... If, if if the theory is correct, then clearly there was a very, very strong desire to direct those who would investigate this place to this date. Now, of course, the Egyptologists said, well, beautiful theory and everything else, but uh, where's the evidence? Well, where are the artifacts? Where are, where are the, the people who did this? There was nobody there, they said. There was no one there. Well, here was another science coming from geology, with Robert Shark and John West, who were also arguing that the Sphinx was also much older because of the erosion of the Sphinx. So the problem became even more pronounced to Egyptologists because here they were combating not not uh, uh, not crazy theories. They were they were they had to, to confront scientific investigation, sciences, hard sciences that were throwing these these dates at them, and they didn't know what to do with them. So, all they could think of doing was saying, you're mad, and you're crazy, and this is nonsense, and so forth. But when they calmed down, they said, well, where is the evidence? Show us the evidence. Well, for a long time, we used to say, well, it's up to you. I mean, you, you're the archaeologist. Go look for it. And uh, nothing happened. But what has changed everything. So, you're still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Ah. <laughs> well you have to make a bit of noises because sometimes we get cut off and I go on and on and on and then realize we're... we're, I'm very attentive.
1: And speaking of that, the Sphinx, was it built at the same time as the Pyramid or was it built later?
0: Well, to to really speak in scientific terms, uh, there is much evidence, both from astronomy and geology, uh, that indicates that the Sphinx was built at a much earlier date than the date given to it by Egyptologists. The Egyptologists sit on 2500 BC and they say it was built by the Pharaoh Khafra who built the second pyramid. That's their position. Mm-hmm. And it is a monument that uh, simply represents the, the status of the king, his strength. He, it's a lion and the king is wanted to show his strength. Well, the sciences say no. And I remember that famous phrase from uh, Robert Schock when all uh, he, he when he gave his famous presentation at the astronomical sorry at the association uh, the American Association of Geologists uh, I think it was '92 and uh, an Egyptologist there was many Egyptologists in the, in, the, in the audience and the Egyptologist stood up and said there isn't one single Egyptologist that agrees with you <laughs> so he wonderfully replied. I do not follow the egyptologists I follow the science and the science tells me that the sphinx is older that's it you know he spoke as a scientist and that's it you know the, the sphinx erosion is older than 2500 bc it, it is a scientific fact and they don't like it you know they they are accustomed to that kind of uh, opposition then when we came with the astronomy uh, the astronomy indicated that the sphinx was Definitely, not just a mere uh, 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 statue that represented the strength of the king. It was a earthly representation of the constellation of Leo. It was a, a symbolic image to represent a time, an age. Now, that completely changes the, 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 the perception of what we have of this monument. It's a very, very clever design that incorporates itself with the pyramids, to establish a, a a momentous event which the egyptians called the first time the beginning now surely it's worth investigating because they they're indicating us to a phase of history that we know nothing about the beginning of human civilization the beginning of something and uh, we are baffled at the uh, at the the uh, not just the resistance but the refusal to 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 look into these theories because the And like I said, now they're going to be obliged to consider an earlier phase in Egyptian civilization because we now have very hard evidence that there were people in Egypt and there were people who were doing what Egyptologists thought the pharaohs had begun doing, doing it thousands of years before. And this is, in fact, the the book that I've just written with with Tom Brophy, by the way, my co-author. Tom Brophy is a physicist who lives in San Diego. He worked for NASA for a while uh he is uh, a teacher in physics uh, we got together because of this new evidence that has emerged and I'll be telling you about this in a minute. So there you are that that is hello Mel yeah I'm, I'm
1: here and another question about this Sphinx: would so it be that it was indeed the face of a lion and he was shaved it was changed to portray a pharaoh instead of a a a, 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 a lion?
0: Well, that's possible. I mean, uh, what uh, causes a lot of people to think that is because the head of the Sphinx is very disproportionate to its body. Yes. It's much, much smaller than it should be if it was proportionate. Uh, There is no way to prove this. It's it's just that idea. Uh, And it does seem to make some sense. Uh, What I'd like to say about the face of the Sphinx, however, is that, uh, and it doesn't take a rocket engineer to realize this, it doesn't look Egyptian at all. Or it doesn't look pharaonic. It looks more like African. And uh, it seems to, to to fit now with the new vision that we have of the origin of the Egyptian civilization, that it owes its origin to a lost prehistoric people that were originally from Central Africa. And, and, and hence the title of my new book, Black Genesis. The evidence is very, very strong now. And uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Sphinx is a representation of that age where the beginning of the pharaonic civilization, or rather the kickstart of the pharaonic civilization, occurred sometime around the 11th or 12th millennium B.C., by this, uh, this, this lost people that we've now identified, this, this lost, I call them the star people of the Sahara. And you will see why when, uh, when you get the chance to read the book. And I'll tell you about it uh, if we have time in this, in this interview. So, that's the latest cutting-edge view. Uh, the evidence is coming out very, very strong, physical evidence, evidence that you can see and touch and that you can measure that indicates a much earlier phase to the Pharaonic civilization with a black African origin from Central Africa. And how so about,
1: how about the, uh, the, the erosion that seems to have been caused by water? Does that mean that at one well, point the pyramids were underwater?
0: Uh, let me say that the astronomy does not prove that the pyramids themselves were geologically that old. It, it indicates that, but it doesn't prove it. It proves that there is a connection with that age. Uh, people say, well, how do you explain that? But l- let me give you an analogy and you'll see what I mean. Uh, we know that the Christian religion or the, or, the, or the life of Christ occurred sometime around 2,000 years ago. We, we, we know this. However, the cathedrals of uh, Northern Europe were begun around the 13th century. Now, anybody who analyzes these cathedrals will come to the conclusion that they were built in the 13th century. This is correct. But they do not represent the 13th century. They represent a time that occurred nearly 1,500 years before. They represent the time of Jesus. Well, what the pyramids represent is the time of Osiris. And more specifically, The representation is done through a very clever design that uses the sky as a timing device because the sky actually changes and therefore it's a very, very clever thing. If we were to build a monument today and we want to represent a date, we would align it to the stars. We would actually pick a certain group of stars and if we'd fix it to these stars through alignments, through shafts, through whatever then it is locked forever because people coming 10,000 years later can precess back and work out the date of this construction or the, the date that it relates to. So to me, the Giza monuments are a memorial to that date. Now, the Sphinx is something else because the Sphinx, we have geological arguments that indicates that the Sphinx is geologically older, not just because it it, it, it represents the, the constellation of Leo at 10500 BC but because it's erosion the way that the rock is uh, examined there indicates that it is much much older so it is possible that we have two phases at Giza two phases that finally lead to the 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 um, the, the the ultimate design the final design which is a representation of the age of Leo this 10500 BC date There is much evidence that suggests this, not just the Sphinx. Uh, You rightly pointed out that when uh, Robert Schock and uh, John West examined the Sphinx and they did the examination of the erosion, the depth of the erosion and and so forth, they arrived at the conclusion that the Sphinx must have been at least a few thousand years older, conservatively, uh, and maybe much older. Certainly not 2500 BC. There was no Uh, no rainfall in that time. Egypt still is and was uh, very, very dry. There wasn't the kind of rainfall to cause that kind of erosion. So, that is a very, very clear scientific conclusion. However, there are monuments that have been ignored for a long time at Giza, which once you realize this possibility of an earlier date, they really jump at you. And these are the so-called valley temples and mortuary temples that are uh, attached to the pyramids. So let me explain this a bit. Can I go on a bit? Sure, then? please do. All right. Well, each pyramid on its east side has what Egyptologists call a mortuary temple. Uh, the ones of the second and third pyramid are are still there for us to see. They're much dilapidated form, but they're still there. The ones of the Great Pyramid, the one of the Great Pyramid, there is only the floor left. There's only the floor left. Now, from these temples would run a causeway that ran to the foot of the valley. And at the end of this causeway was the so-called valley temples. The one belonging to, uh, to the second pyramid builder w- is still there. And uh, much of the stones are there. Now, let me tell you something about these temples. They're very, very mysterious for two reasons. One, again, it doesn't take a rocket engineer that when you look at them, you see two things that are in contrast to all of the other structures around them and, and, and very different from the pyramids. What you see is that they're built with gigantic blocks yes. ranging between 50 and 200 tons. Now, that is in itself is a mystery because two questions arise first of all how did they move these yeah. blocks <laughs> i mean let me give you an idea i mean a 200 ton block is taking 300 family cars and squishing them together right that's a 300 it's it's, it's completely baffling to me as an engineer I'm a construction engineer to 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 think of how they might have moved the stones but what is even more baffling to me is why why would they use blocks so large to build a temple? You don't need to do that. As a matter of fact, they build the pyramids with much smaller blocks. The pyramids are built with blocks that average two tons. And they, 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 they go up to 140 meters high. Well, as these temples are very low, they're very small temples, really, and yet they use 200 ton blocks to build them. It's a totally illogical. It's as if they didn't have a problem building them.
1: Well, it's right. illogical to to us conventional wisdom, but if they had the technology to move it, it may not be illogical well, to them.
0: It raises it raises the question of first of all, yes, how they did it, and like I said, why, and everything indicates that to them it doesn't seem to have been a problem. You know, now either we got the context wrong they they, they did have the technology, or there's something very mysterious about these blocks. You know, it's either or. You know, it doesn't make sense for anybody, even today, to want to build a temple using 50 tons and, and, and 200 ton blocks. It's, it's, it, I mean, the blocks, let me give you an idea. I mean, I'm sitting in my sitting room now, talking to you, and, and some of these blocks are larger than my sitting room. Yes. You know, they're, they're about uh, six, uh, five meters high. They're about uh, ooh, seven, eight meters long, maybe more, and uh, three, four meters deep. I mean, they're, they're gigantic. I I, I don't know if you've seen photographs of them or actually seen them live but I mean it's it's something baffling now what is even more baffling about these blocks is that they're heavily eroded very very eroded they look really old much older than anything else you see around there which indicates to me that whoever built those temples not only was using weird uh, weird uh, technology weird engineering but they must have done them long long time ago Because of the erosion, you see. Now, uh, Egyptologists say, well, they don't seem to be bothered with this. What is even more mysterious is that not only they went to the trouble of using these big blocks, you know, because Egyptologists say, well, maybe they wanted to impress us. But if they did, well, they did something very strange because they covered the blocks with linings of granite so you couldn't see those blocks. right? <laughs> so The whole thing doesn't make sense. It really is one of those things that, as much as I refrain from using the word, is very alien. It really is very alien. It it, it doesn't fit at all our logic, our, our perception of how one would uh, proceed in building temples or uh, to explain how they move the blocks. So to me, there seems to have been what we're beginning to call a megalithic phase that was very, very old. And it's probably linked to the Sphinx. There might have been those temples and the Sphinx, and or, and probably the original plan to, to develop this place, which finally matured and finally uh, was built in the manner that we see it today. But what do you think so happened
1: to, me, to, to the blueprints, to the knowledge? Do you think that maybe during, and you were born in Alexandria, do you think that perhaps the library of Alexandria contained the knowledge? And maybe, who knows, maybe the Vatican may
0: have it under a catacomb somewhere? Well, um, uh, conspiracy uh, theories aside, (laughs) uh, there certainly was a body of knowledge in ancient Egypt that involved several things, Uh, certainly the knowledge of constructing gigantic monuments, as we have been saying. Excuse me, let me clean my throat a bit. (laughs) Yes. And the knowledge of astronomy, uh, the knowledge of uh, amazing technology. I mean, uh, carvings that do not make sense. That's very, very difficult to explain. Uh, I've seen, and I'm very friendly with, uh, with uh, the with uh, the author and researcher Chris Dunn. You probably heard of him. Sure. Chris Dunn is a toolmaker who um, took an interest in the pyramids uh, in 1995. Uh, we invited him to come to Egypt, Graham and I, to have a look. And he's written several books. He's just written one called uh, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. And one should read these books because, you know, here you have not an Egyptologist, but a tool maker. Somebody who knows about tools and particularly knows about tools to use to cut stones and fashion stones. And he comes up, you know, he says, I'm sorry, I don't care what Egyptologists say. These carvings I'm looking at look as if they were cut with machines. You can't do it. You need machines. You need need very, very precise machines and very, very powerful machines. So we have a problem. There seems to be something that we don't understand about our past. Something happened. Something is lost, lost knowledge, and it may have been preserved. It certainly is preserved in in, in a codified manner, perhaps, at Giza. If we can read it, perhaps we'll, we'll retrieve some of this knowledge. Maybe it's hidden there in these chambers. I don't know. And maybe it survived in written form. Unfortunately, it disappeared with the burning of the, of the Alexandria Library. Right. So, we have we have the remnants, luckily. We have the legacy of a very sophisticated civilization, a very high civilization that, that left us something, and we still are lucky to have at least some of it to be able to read it. Where I find my battle with Egyptology is that one, one, not all, but one of the tools, one of the the decoding of these monuments, and I've actually written a book called <laughs> the, the the Egypt Code. Yes. Is to use astronomy, the language that seems to be used by these ancient cultures, not just the Egyptians, by the way, uh, many other cultures is astronomy, the language of the sky. It's very intriguing because it is the ideal language to record something that people can read many, many, many thousands of years later, if one understands how this language works. And also, it raises the question, if you want to be uh, speculative, of some sort of connection with with the sky. It's it's very weird. For example, uh, I've become a bit more bold talking about this, by the way. But uh, one of the things that we know today, for a fact, in modern cosmology, Uh, I was listening yesterday on Discovery Channel by one of my acquaintances, I wouldn't say my friend, but I know him is uh, Michi Kaku, Kaku. the the, the cosmologist. I met him in Switzerland. Very nice guy, by the way. You know, and he is coming up with amazing stuff. I mean, uh, I remember he he told me something that I will never forget. He said, you know, it's becoming so weird when we, uh, the more we find out that we begin to call it crazy science. You know, everything is possible. Anything is possible. We live in a universe where literally everything is possible now. And, and and what makes it even more exciting is we have now established, without any doubt, that there are so-called exoplanets, planets outside our solar system, a billions of them. Uh, I'm quoting uh, Kaku uh, yesterday, saying there is a billion, approximately a billion planets within a galaxy, approximately. And there are ten billion planets, <laughs> galaxies out there. So you work it out. You know, it's ten billion times a billion.
1: <laughs> and yet, some people say that we are alone in the universe.
0: Those who say we're alone are out of touch. Yes, there is no way that in this amazingly vast uh, arrays of of, of uh, planetary system that exists out there, that only one solitary planet, us is populated with life it doesn't make sense it's it, uh, apart from the incredible arrogance to think that this whole universe uh, is totally lifeless and meaningless and it's only this planet you know one has to put and say and, and, and speak out i mean and, and kaku is speaking out and many others i mean he's not the only one and and uh, even those who were reluctant let me tell you uh, 10 15 years ago uh, you know you, you were crucified if you even suggested that there could have been some sort of life intelligent life in the universe. You know, you, you were you were quickly uh, dragged out and, and intellectually burnt at the stake. Burnt at the stake, yes. <laughs> well, they did burn people at the stake. Nowadays, they sort of try and crucify you or burn you intellectually. You know, yes. they, they call you a madman, they call you a, a charlatan, you name it. But it was even worse for people in the academic uh, activity like Egyptology, archaeology. I mean, God forbid. I mean, let alone doing this, even even suggested that there was a connection with stars. You know, when I brought out the Orion correlation theory, I wasn't saying aliens build a pyramid. But they went bananas. I mean, they, 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 they called me all sorts of names. This is ridiculous. It really is. We live now in a, in, a, in a context, scientifically, where we know that the possibility of alien contact, alien life out there, anything is possible. So, it's ridiculous to shut ourselves to anomalies that we have on this planet. There may be or may not be, I don't know. But it is it is foolish and arrogant to close the door because future generations will think we're, we're, we're totally, totally uh, close-minded. I mean, if it ever proves to be true, then we have delayed our investigation of ourselves and the cosmos and our origins simply because we're, we're we're too scared or too worried about our peers this is a mistake this is a mistake well
1: that's why, that's why you sense. are here that's why you are here with me in a place that we call alternative media for discerning minds because we cannot see this information in the mainstream media because they shun it they they ridicule it that's it robert we have to take our one and only intermission tell us how to get in touch with your work by your books and also tell us about your upcoming egypt tour the Robert Bouval and Graham Hancock All-Nile Valley Tour.
0: Okay, my website, That's uh, Please don't use .com because you'll get a very weird site. It's been hijacked. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> if you go to my website, uh, you will see, of course, uh, all my books that have been uh, announced there. There are two books that are coming out one with Thomas Brophy, uh, The Black Genesis? It's published in uh, early April, in a few, in a few days' time, uh, by Inner Traditions. Uh, another book that is coming out in early June uh, is Black, uh, sorry, The Master Game with uh, Graham Hancock. So these are my two forthcoming books, and uh, you can see also the other books that are publicized on my website. You will also see. That there is a tour of Egypt uh, hosted by Graham Hancock and myself that starts on the 28th of April this April uh, for uh, for nearly two weeks and finishes on the 11th of May it is known as an old Nile tour We literally are going to see the whole Nile Valley from bottom to top from south to north and see all the major sites of course the pyramids uh, in lower Egypt uh, and in upper Egypt uh, the temple of Abu Simbel, the Karnak, Luxor, uh, Abu, uh, Dendera, Abydos, all these wonderful temples so if you can make it please join us the tour is advertised there uh, I am in fact going to Egypt uh, on Monday Uh, for a short trip to see for myself what's happened after the revolution. So there you are. That's what I want to tell your guests. Great. Folks, we have a lot more to discuss with Robert
1: Bouval. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. This is Michael Cremo, and you are listening to Veritas Radio.